This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. Don't mean this is a criticism. I think most leaders don't trust their people enough and they're doing it. They, they think they're doing it for the right reasons because they've got responsibility to other stakeholders, uh, like to the school, um, to the board, to uh, parents. So they don't want to necessarily let go. Um, and yet I think we can let go. It's just that we have to make the effort to do that and to do it appropriately. That's Gihan Pereira with a message for today's leaders. Sound challenging? Gihan is my guest today on Central Station. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. Gihan Pereira is a leadership and business futurist and has worked with organisations and leaders in Australia and internationally for over 25 years. He's also just released his new book, Disrupted, Leading the Change Through Crisis, Recovery and Growth. Gihan will be presenting at the 2021 Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association Conference on the challenging topics of leadership and high-performance teams. Always relevant and maybe now more than ever, as the world deals with all manner of crises. In fact, according to Gihan, a crisis doesn't create leaders, it amplifies them. I spoke with Gihan in the lead-up to the conference, where we spent some time looking into the issues surrounding high-performance teams and how we can develop them. Perhaps unsurprisingly, we started by talking about trust. So Gihan, 2020 really doesn't need any introduction. And if you're on the East Coast at the moment in Sydney, then you're getting a pretty strong reminder of how quickly life can change and things can be made really difficult again, particularly from things like you know remote working and learning and suddenly being forced to be in lockdown. It's a very challenging time. And in terms of working in a high-performance team or working with people in these very challenging conditions... One of the things that I noticed from your book, Disrupted, is that you've identified in this particular context, if I can put it that way, three stages of trust. Why these three stages? What are they and and why those ones? Yeah, that's that's right, Colin. I think trust is one of the biggest challenges that many people have had, especially in the last year when you're thinking about things like you've now got your team who are working away from the the school environment, they're working remotely, students are working remotely, and you've just got to trust them in different ways. And by the way, I should say there's two kinds of trust. So one is whether you trust them and you trust their character. So do you trust that they're going to do the right thing? And the second thing is, do you trust their competence? And uh, this chapter in the book and my take on trust is very much around the second area, which is how do you trust people to do the right thing without you having to micromanage or supervise them? And the three levels around that are around how do you build trust? So I think if you say, I don't trust my staff, or I don't trust my team members, that's really about you, not about them. Oh, right. And the three- <laughs> Absolutely. So People, like leaders often say, I don't trust my people. Well, I say to them, well, that's your fault. Okay? In, a kind, in a kind way, in a kind way, um, because I think you haven't done these three things. So the three things you need to build trust are mastery, judgment, and wisdom. So you want to know that you've got people who have actually got mastery in the skills. So there's, they've been employed for their job and they've got to have certain skills, but they have to have built up those skills. And if they're incompetent in those skills, then obviously you can't trust them. So the first thing is to build skills and get them to a level of mastery. The second level is to get them to exercise those skills uh, using good judgment. So they have a number of different situations where they get the chance to exercise them. And over time, they build up good judgment. And that mm. comes from experience. Um, and the third level is where you say they're wise. 
So they then have that big picture perspective. And it sometimes means you, in a particular situation, you break the rules. Sometimes it means you follow the rules. Sometimes it means you ask for permission. Sometimes it means you don't. Sometimes it means you just get out of that situation and choose a different situation instead. And that's where you say people are acting wisely. So you need those three levels. You need mastery first, then good judgment, and then wisdom. Let me just pick on the judgment one before. I'd really like to talk about wisdom, but I just want to come back to the judgment one as well because mm-hmm. um, you talk there about developing mastery of skills and then having the judgment about how to uh, use and execute those skills. What about failure? Is it okay? Or from a leadership perspective, how should we then tolerate failure when a, when a person is trying to exercise judgment, they make a mistake? Does it all just fall to pieces? What's How does a good manager handle that? Yeah, so the first thing you do is you, uh, as much as possible, you start with guardrails around it. So I have an exercise that I often teach leaders, Colin, around good judgment. I say that if you think about any time that, let's say you're a school principal and one of your team members comes to you and says, I'd like to do this, then the first thing you should think about is imagine saying to them, I trust your judgment. Now, you can't always say that, but if you can... (laughs) If you can say that and you know that you can responsibly say that, then absolutely say it and everybody wins, all right? But even if you say, I trust your judgment and you absolutely know that you can do it, you might want to put a couple of guardrails in there because this may be the first time that they're they're doing this task, uh, which might be a little bit outside their comfort zone, perhaps a little bit beyond the skills that they have. Maybe it's a context that they've never never experienced before. Mm. So you may want to put things in place like, uh, let's check in. Uh, give me an outline of your plan. Uh, let's decide when we're going to uh, check in and proceed or check in and abandon and say, no, that didn't work. Um, decide when you have to, like, when you're going to step in and override their decisions. And these are all good things. These are all normal things to do. It's just that you can plan it with that team member in advance. Um, and that minimizes the chances of there being a catastrophic failure. Mm. And and. You don't want to put people into positions where they could cause a catastrophic failure um, right out of the gate. <laughs> you want to build up their build up, uh, build up their judgment step by step first mm. before they get into that position. So there's an element of protection in that build up phase as you're guiding people through that those levels of of, uh, of exercising their judgment, presumably then to bring about that next phase of wisdom so that once you've been through many experiences, you then start to build that wisdom. I'm I'm really curious. In the last 18 months, I guess, and it's not just educators, but it's just pretty much everyone has suddenly been forced to think about life in a different way, and particularly in business that's thrown up many challenges. Wisdom is an interesting one because I often wonder whether wisdom can be measured in the same way that the other ones can be measured. So it's easy to measure whether someone has developed mastery of a particular skill. That becomes obvious. Um, Judgment, perhaps not quite so obvious, but probably easier than wisdom. What do the wise people look like? Look, I have a simple test for any leader if you want to know whether one of your team members is wise. Yes, I really do, actually. Yeah. So we all think that we are wise. Okay. And quite often, the reason that we don't want to delegate something to, if you're a principal, you want to, don't want to delegate to your deputy, or if you're a head of department, you don't want to delegate to one of your staff members, is simply because you believe that they don't, they're not wise enough to do it the same way that you would. And that's not an ego thing. It's just because you've had that big picture perspective. So the real question is, do I trust somebody to do this 
as much as I would trust myself to do it. Not to, not to do it the same way, but to do it as effectively and as competently and to achieve the outcome. So in other words, do you trust them not to stuff up? Because you've got all of this years of experience, lots of different contexts, lots of, uh, you've got wide experience, not just in-depth experience. Uh, and that's what's given you wisdom. So my real test for any leader is to say, and somebody else is as wise as you are, if you can say, I'll let them do it and I'll be hands off and I'm okay with that. And I reckon that's a really good practical test in any staff room, any team environment. Do those people generally look like calm people? <laughs> I can put it that way, the wise ones. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? That, I think that's a stereotype, Colin. They're, they're the people who are um, who are the calm, like nothing ever worries them, but it doesn't have to be that. I think they're the people who are decisive. And decisive doesn't mean that you jump ahead and go, yep, quick decision is a good decision. It's not that at all. Uh, they're the people who will gather enough information to be able to make an informed decision and then make that decision. So they don't wait and wait and wait and wait and wait forever, not making a decision. And they also don't jump ahead and they're not impulsive. Right. So I would go for decisive rather than calm. Right. Okay. So they don't have to um, look like a, uh, a Jedi master, for example. They don't have to have that sort of um, serene look that uh, Master Yoda puts on when he's making a decision. Yeah, exactly. You, you don't have to be Jedi master or a Buddhist monk to be wise. You absolutely don't, but you have to. So wisdom comes to um, making decisions. Like action always comes from making a decision. Even if you take no action, that's a decision. But how are you going to make that decision? And uh, are you going to jump ahead without enough information? Or are you just going to wait, procrastinate uh, for so long that the opportunity passes you by? And the wise people are the ones who find the right balance between those two things. Mm. Now, you've done a lot of work on high-performance teams. And I think that's a really interesting thing about it. And, and, and again, that's one of those things that might be a little bit harder to measure. I mean, you can you can measure uh, things like sales or you can measure things like um, uh, exam results and things like that. But then is that necessarily a true reflection of a high-performance team or is it just a reflection of certain individuals or certain other circumstances? So I'd like to delve into this a little bit more. And you've You've actually uh, highlighted five secrets of a high-performance team. And the one that I find so interesting is that you start with psychological safety. Why is that? Yeah, and I should say, I should say, Colin, these are not my five ideas. This is some research that came out of Google uh, some years ago. They, they ran this project, which they called Project Aristotle, and uh, they, they identified, and Google measures everything. They try to quantify <laughs> everything, and even some of these so-called soft skills, even though I don't like that term, soft skills, but mm. this idea that they're, that they're not necessarily hard, critical, analytical skills. Um, but they came up with these five things, and psychological safety was their number one. The number one criterion for a high performance team is this idea of psychological safety. And the idea is that in a team, you feel that your other team members have got your back. Uh, you feel safe. You feel safe expressing ideas. You feel safe saying, I don't know. You, you feel safe saying something crazy and know that people are not going to laugh at you to your face or behind your back after you leave the room. It's that kind of safety. And what Google found is that the best teams were the ones that everybody had that feeling of psychological safety within the team. And it's something that, that the leader creates, but it's also something that everybody in the team has to buy into. So what does a person do if they're in a team and they they don't have that sense of psychological safety? What if they feel a little bit edgy in their team? How does it does the research tell us anything about what those people can do? 
Yeah, so the, the two things. First of all, when you when you don't feel psychologically safe, you can understand why how that affects your performance because you you, you don't really feel comfortable saying, I'm "Not sure how to do this." Uh, which might mean that you do it wrongly and uh, it might mean that you do it badly or ineffectively. Whereas if you feel safe, obviously, if you say, I'm not quite sure how to do this, and you can say that to either a team member or to um, the leader of the team, then it's easier for you to then then get the help that you require, whether it's um, training, skills, uh, experience, like being put into situations where you can exercise your judgment and so on. Um, so if you find yourself in that situation, then um, it does take some challenging conversations, maybe with the person who made you feel unsafe and otherwise with your team leader. And often people aren't deliberately trying to create uh, an environment where it's unsafe. They don't realise that the things they're doing actually make you feel unsafe. For example, somebody might somebody might have a suggestion and quite often somebody else in the team and quite often it's a leader will say something like oh we tried that once but it didn't work hmm. or we'll never get approval for that or that's not part of your job or um you know what's the return on investment in this uh, or what will the parents say so all of these things are legitimate concerns but by saying them you immediately create an environment where people don't want to say that the next time um so the person saying it uh, is saying it with the best of intentions, but might be creating a situation that makes other people feel unsafe, suggesting ideas like that in the future. So um, sometimes it just takes a simple conversation and sometimes a challenging conversation to create more psychological safety. And I reckon also, if you're the leader in your team, then, then talk openly about this idea of psychological safety just, just talk about talk about the Google research. Quote mm. me, quote Google, and say this is something that we really need in our team. And if if I make it, if I make you feel unsafe, please let me know. Mm. Let me know privately because that's a safe way to do it. Um, if somebody else makes you feel unsafe, please let them know privately. And can we have an agreement that everyone is going to be open about psychological safety? Because it's a, it's a whole team thing. It's not just something that a leader can mandate and then everybody comes on board. I can imagine though that it might not necessarily be quite an easy thing for someone to do if they're feeling vulnerable because they feel psychologi psychologically unsafe. I can imagine that might take a little bit of, uh, well, sort of... Uh, working up to that level, I suppose, or may, would you recommend that, that someone might necessarily get someone alongside them to bring that up so that they don't have to do it on their own? Uh, yes, but also, as I said, to start, start it off by the leader being really open and honest about this idea of psychological safety, talk mm. about it, get agreement with the team, so that then when somebody does something that uh, makes somebody else feel a bit, little bit unsafe, at least you've created that environment where that person has got permission to talk to the other person about it. It doesn't mean that the conversation will always go well, yeah. but at least you've got permission. Yeah. At least you know what we're talking about yeah. and we've got permission to have that conversation. And that makes so, things so much easier. And that is a leader's role to create that environment where people are okay with talking about, hey, I feel a bit unsafe here. And I guess that also re uh, relates to one of the other uh, factors of high-performance teams here that you've mentioned, and that is structure and clarity. And I suppose if the leader sets up the structure whereby those things are openly discussed and it's clear, then that's going to help people understand that this is an environment where I can actually talk about those things. How, how does structure and clarity then also help to manage both that and people's expectations about how the team should work? 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, structure and clarity are really interesting things because uh, often people say the best teams are the ones where we don't have lots of rules and processes and checklists and templates and structures and formality. And that's not necessarily true. Certainly, you don't want to overwhelm people with all those things, but you also don't want to have a completely free-flowing team when nobody really knows what their goals are, nobody's really clear about what they're supposed to achieve, nobody really has any idea about how their days are supposed to work, how we're supposed to communicate with each other. The, The sweet spot is somewhere in the middle, and structure and clarity absolutely help. Because team members, by definition, are part of a team. You're a member of a team. You have a role to play. You want to be clear about what your role is, what your responsibilities are, uh, where you can go beyond those responsibilities and where you shouldn't. Um, And you want to have some structure about how you work together, how you communicate, how you don't communicate. Uh, What happens if I can't speak to somebody uh, within, you know, within the next hour, the next day, do I go ahead and make a decision anyway? Or is it really important to wait for that person? So those sort of things actually are the glue that hold the team together. The structure and clarity are, are super critical. And having those, so I don't like the idea of, pro, uh, of um, rules, but if you, think of, if you think of them as guidelines rather than rules. So if you have rules of thumb that say, if I send you an email, then generally, um, expect a response within 24 hours. Hmm. Not 24 minutes, 24 <laughs> hours. Okay? And so having that guideline, uh, and it doesn't have to be 24 hours. It might be before the end of the day, before we leave school for the day. Or if you say um, there's some things that shouldn't happen by email because I, we're, we're not expected to check our email every day. Hmm. Um, not everybody has a free period where they can go and check email. Or not everyone's going to check email before they leave. Uh, at the end of the school day. So set up some rules around that, set up some guidelines around that, and then if everybody understands them, everything will work more smoothly as a team. There's something I've really been wanting to ask you. I've been looking forward to this question, and I'm going to preface it by actually quoting from your book here. It's part four, which is meaning of highly uh, high-performance teams. I'll just read the first bit out. People find meaning in the work itself or its output, and it aligns with their own sense of purpose and personal goals. Now, this this resonated really strongly with me because not so long ago, it was just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a retired gentleman who said to me with arms folded, with a kind of a look of resignation about him, he said, I've come to realize at this point of my life that work really is, it's just a mundane thing that just has to be endured. And I thought to myself, oh no, I'm not sure how to react to that. What do you say to that? Um, you know, many years ago in my very first job, I was working as a, as a software developer for a software company out here in Perth, and I was the project manager. Actually, I was the deputy project manager, and uh, my project manager, every day, every morning, we used to have um, a, a meeting, just the two of us, just to plan out the day. And I remember one day coming to him and saying, oh, look, there's this person in the team, and she's just not motivated. She just doesn't, she doesn't really seem to care she just does her stuff but doesn't really seem to be on board and we've got this project deadline coming up and I don't know she just seems doesn't seem excited and Bruce my boss said to me isn't it great that not everybody wants to be a star (laughs) and and look and it, it really gave me a really different perspective around this that um a team's made up of all kinds of people yeah and not everybody wants to be the ace performer, wants to be the star, wants to be the standout, really excited, motivated person. Um, And Bruce wasn't in any way 
criticizing this other team member. He was just giving me a different way, a different angle to look at the people in the team. And uh, it made me think very differently about my team members from then on. In fact, I had uh, working with me, the, the two people that I was managing um, in different areas of the software project were very different. So there's one um, one guy who was really excited, really motivated. Um, he was on the ball with everything. Um, the, the other person was less excited, less motivated, but she was as much on the ball with everything. And when I was having conversations with both of them about what they want to get out of their work and um, what would motivate them, um, this second person, uh, she said, uh, look, I'm just at work because I want to make sure I earn really good money and look after my family. And Michael, the first guy, he was going, oh, look, this is what I'm really excited about, new stuff, excited about innovation. I can see myself working in Silicon Valley in a few years' time, which he did. Um, And I thought, this is fantastic. These are two very different people with very different motivations but the, so for for, this, uh, for one person their motivation and the meaning that they got was simply to earn enough money to put food on the table and that's not any less valuable mm. than it's not any less valid than somebody else who goes i just want to do the best thing we can and change the world now coming back to your retired gentleman and <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I wonder whether he would have been considered, or he was, or whether he would have been part of a high-performance team as opposed to somebody who was just there and he didn't really care whether he was part of the team or not. He didn't really care whether his work had impact. And the meaning that he got was simply the, the money that came from his work, which allowed him to fulfil his other goals in life, which might have involved things around family and community. And that's okay. And that's okay. It's just that now there are more people who want more from their work than money. They want mm. meaning, not just money. They want to have, uh, they want to make an impact. Mm. And especially with the younger generations, not solely and not everyone in those generations, but especially the generation wise, which are now, like the oldest of them are like um, in the early 40s, um, and Generation Z who are just entering that the graduate workforce, like 21, 22. And they're the sort of people who say, I want a job that gives me purpose and it's going to change the world. And they really do care about that. And uh, they're willing to, in fact, take a, uh, take a pay cut if mm. they've got a job that uh, that really has the impact. And uh, yeah, it takes all sorts. It takes all sorts, Colin. And yeah. I've realized that over the years and we're working with lots of leadership teams, uh, it's really good that not everybody wants to be a star, but everybody can be a star in their own way as long as they, they're an important part of the team. I wonder if that, that sense of looking for, for greater meaning and wanting to have a job that makes an impact in the world, and particularly when we talk about younger generations, as, as you just mentioned, I wonder whether the current state of the world, whether it's environmentally or geopolitically, uh, you know, climate change, et cetera, is, is starting to make uh, some kind of a, an impact on, on, those, on those younger people who, who say, look, it's not just about me making a choice about not just wanting to work for money, but we can't afford it if we're all just working for money because we have to have a broader view here. Do you, do you see any of that coming out? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think in, in staff rooms, there are those people. It's not that, uh, like, it's not like every teacher is exactly the same person. They don't, they don't all fit the same demographics and psychographics. You've got people who are passionate about climate change and diversity and inclusion and the role of women in leadership positions and um, every other topic under the sun. They're all there as part of your team. It's just as, like, if you're a leader, are you tapping into those skills and talents and those unique expertise that they've got? Um, I mean, for years, I've been talking about uh, Eddie Wu, 
Mm. I'm sure you'd have come across yeah. Colin, the, the, the high school maths teacher who just decided because one of his students was um, was sick in hospital, couldn't get access to, uh, couldn't come to school. And so he just set up a webcam at the back of his classroom, started recording his maths lessons, put them up on YouTube, called it WooTube. And now he's a, like, you know, a, a, an internet sensation, an education celebrity. But he just did that because he was passionate enough about his students to make sure, in fact, only just one student, he was passionate enough to make sure that she would be able to pass her year 12 exams. Mm. And now there are more people than like that who just have the ability to do that you can imagine 10 or 15 years ago that wouldn't have happened it just wouldn't have been no. as easy for, for him to have that impact because yeah. it still had that impact for that one student but now that impact can can literally be around the whole planet and you've got those people in your team the 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 question is not whether they've got the passion the question is whether you you're giving them opportunities to to leverage that passion well let's say that there's a uh a head teacher here listening to this conversation and they're sitting there scratching their heads thinking, hmm, I think I need to do something about my team. Not really quite sure what it is, but I know that there's something that I think I need to do. What's the first thing that someone in that situation can do? Okay, so I reckon the first thing to do is not think of them as team, as a team, but think of them as individuals. So you've got people in your team and each of them um, you, you treat individually. I reckon the biggest thing that you can do is trust them with a little bit more than you think you can trust them with. Oh, that's interesting. Like circling, circling right back to what we started with, Colin. Um, I reckon a lot of leaders and a lot of parents hold on too long and they don't let go soon enough. So coming back to what we said earlier, I trust them with more. So um, imagine saying, I trust your judgment and then put people into situations where you don't necessarily, you can't just let them go and give them 100% free reign, but give them new opportunities and put appropriate guardrails in place just to make sure that things work well um, when you when you give them the, those new experiences and new situations. Um, I, I just think most leaders don't, and this is not, I don't mean this is a criticism. I think most leaders don't trust their people enough and they're doing it, they, they think they're doing it for the right reasons because they've got responsibility to other stakeholders, uh, like to the school, um, to the board, to uh, parents. So they don't want to necessarily let go. Um, and yet, I think we can let go. It's just that we have to make the effort to do that and to do it appropriately. So if you're a leader, if you're a principal, if you're a head of department, then trust your people more, give them more opportunities to shine, and they will. Mm, I like the sound of that. Now, you've referred there specifically to education, but that's not the only thing that you do. Where do we find out more about what you do and how you help people? Yeah, thanks, Colin. So I am a leadership futurist and a business futurist, and I work across lots of different sectors. And the best place to find me is uh, at my name, kihanperera.com. So if you go to kihanperera.com, then you'll find all my details there. And I'd love to, I'd, I love having these sort of conversations. I'd love to chat with you. Um, you find my email address, phone number, everything, sign up to my newsletter, uh, my online presentations, everything's there. So uh, at kihanperera.com. Well, we'll make sure that uh, all of those links and information are in the episode description for this episode. Gihan, I just have to say, it's been really inspiring talking with you this morning. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've actually learned quite a lot. And I did get to ask you that one question, which I really wanted to ask about that poor retired gentleman. But I've, I've now looked, I, I now look at him and I think, do you know what? My perception of you has been changed. And I think it's for the positive. So thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Thanks very much, Colin. 
You've been listening to Central Station. If Gihan's message resonates, then please share this episode with a friend or colleague. And to find out more about Gihan's latest book, Disrupted, then be sure to visit his website, gihanperera.com. You can find those links in the description for this episode. And for more great stories from inspiring educators around Australia, make sure you subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening.